Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Our family moved from South Carolina to Louisville, Kentucky in the fall of 2010 uh, for me to pursue theological education at Southern Seminary. And by the end of our first semester there, uh, late fall of 2010, Elise and I had pretty much settled on our family, uh, two kids at that time, and Julia on the way. Elise and I had pretty much settled on our family becoming members at Emmanuel Baptist Church along with uh, the Sequeras, Aubrey and Nishika Sequeira, uh, who has preached here uh, earlier in 2022. And a single man at the time, Johnny Atkinson, Irish guy that you could barely understand, and uh, and the Craigs, who have been living in North Myrtle Beach. And at that time, uh, I would say that there were probably about 150 to 175 people at Emmanuel, Regularly gathering for Sunday worship up from uh, about 15 to 20-ish people maybe a decade earlier when Ryan Fullerton became the lead pastor. It was a very unhealthy church when Ryan came on. And without a shadow of a doubt, Emmanuel's preaching and teaching ministry was stellar. It still is. Pastor Ryan served our family with the best preaching I had ever heard. But even with stellar preaching and a strong commitment to the word, there were problems related to administration and logistics, Uh, many related to the building itself and the building's location. There was almost no parking. You Emmanuel people will remember that. It's almost no parking. The church building was in the ghetto, not the safest place to walk any kind of long distance, and when you don't have parking... And you got to walk a ways. It's not safe. Uh, when we came in, there wasn't much of a welcome team. Some of it was leadership. Some of it was just a shortage of volunteers. And so at least in our experience, ho- hospitality on a Sunday morning was a bit eh. 
Uh, it was easy for new folks to come in and be largely unengaged as members largely interacted with other members and, and people that they knew. There wasn't a clear ministry put in place, not a clear process for how new visitors and prospective members were to become involved. And Pastor Ben Hedrick tasked me with helping him to lead the welcome team shortly after we became members, and we were, able, we were able to make some important changes related to the membership process, parking, security. We didn't have enough Emanuel Kids volunteers, shocking. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of families kept having babies. They didn't seem to care that volunteers were in high demand and low supply. And as the word continued to increase, the congregation to continued to increase. So in a five-year span, Emmanuel's membership tripled in size uh, to about 600 to 650 saints with an auditorium that seated less than 275 with the increased growth, there was also increased complaints about transients in the congregation, as well as the divide between seminary members and long-term Louisville folks. Some members were tempted to not get close to new seminary families or students, members, because they were probably going to be gone in two to three to four years. The administrative and logistical issues we dealt with previously were morphing. New problems were arising, and at times it felt like a huge mess because it was. By 2015, 2016, on a Sunday morning, it was nearly impossible to navigate the hallways between services. Near, like, you got in there and, and the traffic just pushed you. Sometimes places you didn't want to go. <laughs> there were only a handful of toilets on the main two floors of the building. The pastors and congregation looked for years for numerous other buildings that could house everyone in one service, and in the meantime, we moved from one service to two services, then from two services to three services. Preaching three services from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. is pretty exhausting. I'm not going to lie to you. I like preaching one time on a Sunday. And the entire time, Emmanuel elders were working towards planting more churches, particularly in Louisville, in an effort to see more healthy churches, more people as core groups go out of Emmanuel, which would help plant more churches, but also ease some of the congestion in the building. They helped to revitalize a dying church in the area and ask saints to join that work, and saints did leave to join that work, but were replaced by even more new members. Emmanuel elders tried a number of different plans to meaningfully shepherd each of the members. Not, I mean, I, I tell you, when there are 10 to 15 guys responsible for 600 plus people, it's hard to shepherd. And up to that point, Emmanuel was by far the healthiest church that my wife and I had ever been a part of. But as the word increased and as the congregation increased, the number of logistical and administrative problems increased, threatening to undermine Emmanuel's unity. And in Acts 6, we see the Jerusalem church growing rapidly. And with that rapid growth comes an administrative problem that threatens to divide Christ's new covenant church. And sometimes 
we, we, we like to highlight this aspect, particularly because it's true for so many overseas. Sometime, sometimes the greatest threat to a local church's existence is tyrannical government or oppressive regimes. We've seen that reality in Acts 3 to 5. We're going to see it again in Acts 8 to 12. But not all dangers to God's people look like persecution, imprisonment, or death. Sometimes the greatest threat to a local church's existence is sin in the body, whether it be lying to church leadership, as we see in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, or saints discussing and debating over their favorite preacher, like we saw in 1 Corinthians, or divisive grumbling about God's provision of food and, and or wicked speech against God's leader, as we see with Israel, Aaron, Miriam, against Moses in Numbers 11 to 12. But sometimes, at a, given, at a given moment, the greatest threat to a local church's existence is administrative in nature, which is what we see in Acts 6, 1 to 7. The book of Acts will show us many things But one major point it will teach us is that the threat to congregational unity is ever-present. And unity is something that we have both in the Spirit and must strive to maintain in the power that the Spirit supplies. And these threats to unity come from outside and within, are intentional at times and unintentional. So this morning we have three points. The first is this. Hold fast to the word as you live together in this church. Hold fast to the word as you live together in this church. Hold fast to the word as you live together in this church. Secondly, Honor your leaders as they lead in the midst of problems. Honor your leaders as they lead in the midst of problems. One more time. Honor your leaders as they lead in the midst of problems. And third, help one another so needs are met and the church grows. Help one another so needs are met and the church grows. Last time, Grace. Help one another so needs are met and the church grows. Grace and Robin. <laughs> As we look at Acts 4 to 6, Luke has been flip-flopping. Flip-flopping between pressures that can easily destroy the church. Persecutions from the outside, Acts 3 to 4, Lying deception on the inside, Acts 5. Persecution and beatings on the outside, Acts 5. And now, again, logistical issues regarding widows and mercy meals on the inside that threaten to undermine the church's unity and cause a schism shortly after the birth of this new covenant community. Luke is intentionally highlighting that there are pressures all around as well as inside the local church that threaten to undermine it and kill it. We must be cognizant of these dangers and strive to love 
and honor one another as we live together, but part of maintaining unity is having a right understanding and proper expectations of the local church and our leaders. We see this point clearly in Acts 6, 1 to 7. So what's happening here? What's the context? Peter and John have just been beaten by the Jewish religious leaders for being faithful apostles of Christ Jesus. We've got to obey God rather than you. We can't stop preaching about Jesus. And you'll remember that Luke is showing us in, this fir- in the first several chapters of his narrative in Acts that this new redemptive historical body, the church, this new covenant community, has brought about a shift in worship. Things are moving away from Old Testament temple structures, Levitical sacrificial systems, Levite priests, moving towards an apostolic-led church centered around Jesus who have become the new temple of God because Christ is himself the fulfillment of the temple, and they've been united to him by the Spirit. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus is the true high priest. And now the new covenant and its realities are governing God's new covenant people. Luke is is showing this awkward transition that's happening between old and new. And Luke has shown us that God has rejected the old corrupt shepherds of Israel as the prophets said would happen. He has rejected the old corrupt shepherds and priests of Israel and has ushered in a new work, a new leadership, a new covenant all through the power of his spirit who has applied the work of his beloved son, Christ Jesus, to his new beloved people. In Acts 6, Luke transitions the narrative from the events of Acts 5 and the temple's false shepherds persecuting Christ's apostles to introduce Stephen as well as to outline Stephen's Acts 7 speech where he rebukes and calls to repentance these same false shepherds. So what is Luke doing in Acts 6, 1 to 7? He's he's introducing Stephen, but he's also giving us an honest glimpse of the inner life of the earthly church. And my hope is that the picture that he paints for us will help you to see the local church more accurately and to live more faithfully in it as Christians. So the first point, hold fast to the word as you live together in this church. Luke gives us a reality check. Not everything is rosy. It's easy to think that when we read the Bible. And the first important point we must see from the text is that the church is a community of the word. A community of the word. The church is created by the word, shaped by the word, built up by the word, sustained by the word, called to obey the word. And I want you to look at Acts 5.42 and 6.1. And then again at 6, 7, 542, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, go down to seven, 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to notice what Luke is emphasizing here in the narrative. What's, what's it called? An inclusio. An inclusio. Not as many nerds here this morning. <laughs> Bookends. Front and back. You need to notice two important things that should inform how we read this particular passage. First, the word is being preached, taught, and applied and is increasing in the church and the community. And secondly, as a result, the disciples were increasing in number. When the word increased, disciples increased. The church is given to God's word, and God's word produces good fruit. This section begins and ends with Luke noting that the word, and therefore the disciples were increasing in number, but before, before the administrative problem emerges in Acts 6, what's central to the church and her growth in number and holiness is the word of God. We got to highlight what Luke is highlighting. The word of God is being faithfully preached and taught by the apostles as Jesus commanded them. They are testifying to Christ Jesus and the salvation that he has won. Through their preaching and eyewitness testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, as well as through the teaching of how the Old Testament has, found, has now found its fulfillment in this Jesus, the apostles are building up the church. They're laying a foundation and putting up, framing and putting together God's house through the preaching of the word. More and more Jews, believing Jews, are being ushered into this new covenant, king, uh, new covenant people through the word. God's kingdom is expanding through the church. When the apostles preach, God brings the growth. Jesus had said that the fields were white for the harvest. He had, he had already said that the fields were white for the harvest. He already said that all who belonged to him would hear him and respond rightly. So, what we see here is simply more of God's promises coming to fruition. God has made these promises, and they're, they're coming true as, as they always do. God said, preach the word, I'll bring the growth, and we're seeing that. That should encourage our prayers. That should encourage our preaching and our evangelism, our sanctification, because we, we have precious promises tied to all of those things. We need to believe them and live in light of them. If you want to see healthy church growth, preach the word. Preach the word. If you want to see gr saints grow in grace, preach the word. If you want to see your unbelieving family and friends and coworkers and fellow students and neighbors to be converted, proclaim the word. Don't get sidetracked by silly arguments, silly distractions, and silly rabbit holes. Bring them to the word. The word changes people because the spirit testifies to Christ in that spirit-inspired word. God meets people in his word. We must proclaim the word because God's primary means of growing his church 
is the word inspired by the Spirit, being preached by people and dwelt by the Spirit, and who are praying in the Spirit for unbelievers who are dead in their sins to be regenerated and raised from the dead by the Spirit. Christians preach Christ to people who need Christ to save them. And Christians preach Christ to Christians who need him to sustain them and to sanctify them and to keep them all the way to the end. We can't ever get away from the word. Ultimately, it's always the word, not clever arguments, though we should have good arguments. Not winsomeness, though we should strive to be winsome. Not funny stories, though some of us are very funny, and we can't help it. Not entertaining services, none of it. It's the power of the word alone that accomplishes God's purposes in the world. He has already said that. Isaiah 55. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The Lord is saying, listen, just as water comes from the heavens and does what it's supposed to do and doesn't come back, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's our confidence. God's going to do his work through his word as he promised. We may, we ha may have disagreements on tertiary issues of doctrine in a local church. That's fine. But we can't get away from what is primary, preaching the gospel teaching the word, Christ and him crucified, prayerfully expecting God to use his word to accomplish his purposes in the world and to grow his church. The number one task of church planting, the number one task of church growth, the number one task of church revitalization, preach the word and prayerfully watch God work. The word is essential. And Luke makes that point. Second, second point, honor your leaders as they lead in the midst of problems. Why is, why is it important to know that the word is central? Because problems will always surface in the church until Jesus returns. Problems will always pop up. In chapter 6, verse 1, we see an administrative issue that pops up as a result of the rapid growth of the Jerusalem church. The church is exploding in number. People are being converted. Now, these are all Jews. But an issue pops up because the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, before we get into what's actually going on, who are Hellenists? Okay? The Hellenists were originally Greek-speaking Jews that had, that had moved back to Jerusalem from all the other nations, the diaspora. They'd grown up elsewhere, moved back to Jerusalem. The large majority of them would have been ethnic Jews who simply grew up in different cultures and had a different language, Koine Greek, the, the Greek of the New Testament. And some of them would have been Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. That's what we see with Nicholas, a proselyte. So a Hellenist in Jerusalem would be like the American Brian Powell 
living in England. That, that, that's, that's where family's from. That's ancestral home grounds, okay? I, I would look similar, share a common worldview, but even the English language is different, and culture is very different. A lot of similarity, similarities in appearance and worldview between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, but significant differences in language and culture. The Hebrews were Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking Jews. They had grown up around Jerusalem, in, the, in, in Israel, all of their lives. The Hebrews would have comprised the overwhelming majority of the Jewish and Christian population in Jerusalem. So the vast majority of Jerusalem's Hebrew Jews. The Hellenists were the cultural minority in Jerusalem. But both Hebrews and Hellenists had come to faith in Christ by the preaching of the gospel. So the gospel comes in and it saves all kinds of people. But there are going to be cultural issues. Now, there's nothing in the text that indicates that the Hellenist widows were being intentionally overlooked. That's important. There's nothing to indicate that the widows going without in the food distribution, that that was intentional on the Hebrews' part, okay? Nor is there anything in the text that indicates that the Hellenist complaint itself was a sin. Okay, normally, normally in Old Testament, when Israel grumbles, the Lord like kills many of them because they're sinning against him, okay? No indication that, there's, that this is sin here. It's a justice issue. Overlooking the care of widows and the fatherless was a major social justice issue in the Old Covenant. Exodus 22, verses 22 to 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The Lord cares about widows. We need to make sure that we take care of our widows. The old, if, if the old covenant which was given by angels, said, the Lord said, I'm going to make you widows if you don't take care of your widows. How much more so the new covenant administered by the Son? Right? That's the author of Hebrews. Everything's escalated in the new covenant. We need to be taking even better care of our widows than the Israelites did. So we know the Lord cares for widows and orphans for the powerless. Luke has already shown us, if there was any doubt, moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, well, things have changed. Well, Luke has already shown us that Jesus deeply cared about widows. A widowed prophetess in the sovereignty of the Lord is the one who spoke over Jesus when he was a baby. Anna. Jesus' own mother, Mary, had become a widow by the time Christ's ministry had begun. And we see him take care of her while he is nailed to a cross. Like, hey, John, this is your mom. Mama, this is your son. Jesus raised a widow's only son from the dead during the man's funeral in Luke 7. Jesus commended the poor widow who gave generously to the temple. 
He used the parable of the persistent widow before the unrighteous judge as a lesson for Christian persistence in prayer. The Apostle Paul later gave strict instructions for how to care, care well for widows. In 1 Timothy 5, preached through that a few years back. Caring for widows is very important to the Lord. The overlooking of the Hellenist widows in food distribution may have been unintentional, but it was a serious issue nonetheless. If these widows weren't being good, they had little means of providing for themselves. So the complaint arising in the church shouldn't be seen like Israel complaining about food in the wilderness in Numbers 11. It was a justice issue. The Lord said, if they cry out to me, I will hear them. But before we get to the solution, we need to level set our expectations with the reality. I, I don't want to just gloss over this because this is a major, major point. Okay? Problems will pop up in the church. Full stop. Welcome. Welcome. You see a problem? I see a dozen. All right? Problems will pop up in the church. Some that cannot necessarily be avoided but they can be handled in a way that honors God and one another. Okay, like Emmanuel did really everything that they possibly could to try and push Christians out. But the Lord brought four to 500 additional people. And what are you supposed to say? Like, no, we're, we can't, we're not going to preach the gospel to you. You got to go somewhere else. I mean, you can do that. An administrative issue popped up in Jesus' ministry when his teaching caused thousands to gather. You'll remember this, right? Peter's like, the, the disciples are like, send these people home, Jesus. They got to eat. And Jesus is like, why don't you feed them? You feed them. When Jesus teaches, thousands gather, and there's seemingly no way of feeding them, and they don't want to leave. That's a problem. And Jesus is the one leading so I don't want to say like, well, apparently there's an issue with Jesus' leadership. There's no problem with Jesus' leadership. Absolutely not. And Jesus told him, you feed the people. Jesus' teaching of the word drew thousands of people and the disciples seemingly had no way of feeding them. They wanted to shoo them off. And we could have done that at Emmanuel. Go get your food elsewhere. Feast on the word elsewhere. That's an administrative problem that Jesus' teaching causes, but also a problem that Jesus himself solves with the multiplication of the loaves and fish. In Acts 2 to 6, the Lord is converting so many people that the apostle-led early church simply doesn't have the administrative systems and protocols in place to ensure that no widow, regardless of culture or background, is going without food or assistance. The, the apostles can't say, like, just go, go to the church in Galilee. Go to that local church. They've got plenty of place and room for you. There is no church in Galilee. There's only a church in Jerusalem. Where else can they go? We need to recognize that problems arose in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Nobody does better ministry than Jesus and the apostles. I'm sorry, but nobody does better ministry. 
and problems popped up. It's almost like the Lord sovereignly brought these problems. Like He sovereignly brought Job's suffering. It's almost like that's the reality. Because it is. So why? Why? So that the church would lean on Him. And rather than just saying, we love God and love our neighbor, they would demonstrate that they love God and love their neighbor. The presence of a problem in the church does not necessarily communicate that a church is in sin or has major moral failures or weakness. Acts 6 shows us growing pains in the church. Like my kids have regularly complained over the past decade, man, my legs hurt, my arms hurt. It's, you're growing. That's what happens. Growing pains. And you're going to be bigger and stronger. There may be moral problems that arise in the church that need to be addressed with rebuke and correction, church discipline and or repentance, but there will often be amoral problems that pump, pop up in the church, again, not because of sin, but are still important and need solutions. There is a reason why the Lord gives the spiritual gift of administration. Problems will always pop up in a community of redeemed sinners living in a fallen world. I, I just want to like beat that drum so that y'all all know if you see a, a problem in the local church, great. We're, let's work to solve it rather than fussing about it. If you come into a local church believing that in order for it to be faithful, no issues or problems can ever arise, you have got wrong, false expectations of the church. It's a community of broken people who are clinging to Jesus. Where else can you be weak? Where else? Where else can you bring your problems? If you find that perfect local church, you need to leave it before you ruin it. Because you're going to bring all your garbage. If administrative problems popped up amongst God's people when Jesus himself was on earth and problems arose when the apostles themselves were leading the church, you've got unrealistic expectations to think that the local churches today won't have weaknesses and problems. You do. You have wrong expectations that need to be corrected by the word. The important point is are you willing to strive together in love to solve the problem and to serve one another? I mean, I think it's a grace that there was literally no other local church that any of these people could have run to. Because you know what the disposition today is? Is if I see a problem in a local church, I run to another one. And then I see a problem in that local church and I run to another one. And then I keep running, and I run for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and I make myself completely useless to the kingdom. That's a real danger. And, it, and it's a grace, I think, in part, that they couldn't run anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go. The church had to solve the issue.
A lot of people are running to other churches, always chasing the one. And they won't ever find it. Not if they've got wrong expectations. Won't find it until the new creation. One major sign of a healthy congregation with healthy leadership and a healthy body is that when these kinds of administrative or logistical problems arise, biblical solutions are pursued while members show love and honor to one another. It's so easy to say in your head, and I mean, I know it's because I I did this, particularly in seminary. Like, it's so easy to say in your head, like, oh, I, I know what a healthy church looks like, conceptually. It's like, you know, Chad walked in this morning. He's like, I just want to let you know that I'm an expert in parenting now. (laughs) Having a baby last week, you know. You know, there's a difference between theory and practice, right? It's another thing to plant and sustain a healthy church because a healthy church will inevitably have problems as more sinners are converted, bringing in more baggage, more needing more teaching, needing more counseling, needing more assistance for physical needs, etc., etc., etc. So when we see weaknesses in the local church, let's not automatically assume it's a it's bad leadership, it's an unhealthy congregation. Let's assume rather that we're going to be a part of the solution. And we're going to aim to love one another well as we seek to address the issue together in the bond of peace. We also see from the narrative that God's appointed shepherds in local church must give themselves primarily to the word and prayer. Look at how the apostles respond to the serious administrative problem. Look at verses 2 to 4. And the twelve summoned, twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They call the congregation together. This is the first members meeting in the history of the church, okay? And the apostles tell them it's not right. It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for us to give up preaching the word. It's inappropriate for us to stop preaching the word because that's the task that Jesus assigned to us in the Great Commission and prior to Pentecost to witness to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's not appropriate for us to stop what God has commissioned us to do in order to do something, even something important, that will distract us from that primary mission. We would be unfaithful to Jesus if we started taking care of the Hellenists ourselves. But this need is very important. It's a serious issue. The need must be met. So we're going to call everybody together. We need to take care of our widows. So therefore, we're delegating to you, saints, the responsibility of bringing before us qualified men out of your midst to meet this particular need. That's what's appropriate. Appropriate delegation. It wasn't appropriate for the Jerusalem church to look at the apostles and expect them to fix every administrative or logistical problem that would inevitably pop up. Leaders must lead, which means that they can't do everything themselves. Church leaders must, particularly elders, since I would argue we don't have apostles today, they're in heaven. 
Church leaders must govern over the people as we work to solve these problems together. So the apostles are level-setting expectations here. They're assigning job roles, as good leaders do. As Moses had to delegate in Exodus 18 and Numbers 11 in order that all the needs of God's people were met, so also the apostles are finite men. Finite men. Given specific tasks which did not include waiting tables. That is not to say that waiting tables is unimportant. That is a logical fallacy. Waiting tables is important, but it's also important who waits the tables. And it's also important who does the teaching. We don't have apostles today, but we have pastors and elders in the local church who oversee the congregation, who preach, who teach, who rule, who govern, who shepherd, and who pray. Those are our primary tasks in this body. When a certain problem arises that need to be addressed, it very well may be that Drew, Michael, or I, or any other future elders that the Lord gives us, may have to say, we can't stop from our primary mission. We can't, we can't stop from our primary job to fix this problem ourselves. So, so, so we need folks to meet this need, or we need to raise up more deacons in order to make sure that folks are getting their needs met, that this problem is solved. We don't want to overlook any problems. I can't, I can't tell you how often people have come up to me in the past to tell me about administrative or logistical issues in the church, members and non-members both, uh, here and in Emmanuel, with the expectation that simply informing me of a problem is where their responsibility ended and where mine began. I mean, come tell me when there are problems. The people did talk to the apostles. But don't be surprised when the elders, or if you come to me, ask, ask you, can you solve it? Can, can, you, can you put together a team to fix the issue? Hey, we need to do more of this. Great. What's your idea? When are you starting that ministry? That's congregationalism. Like there is, like I, I know I'm behind a pulpit and on a stage, but we inherited the building. I didn't design it. Like there's not a professional clergy laity divide here in terms of like, Holiness before the Lord? I do have a role, but you do too. We're all a royal priesthood, right? We're, we're all kneeled before the cross of Christ together, even as I'm leading along with Drew and Michael, in the same way that husbands are leaders in the home, but not more valuable than their wives. They're on, they're on the same plane. They're, they're, they're working together as a wife submits to her husband and a husband leads the home. Dying to himself. Look at how the apostles lead. They bring everybody together because the issue is serious enough to warrant the, the, the entire body's attention. But then they tell everyone it's not appropriate or right for us to fill this need because we've got greater responsibilities. So they then tell the, the congregation, get qualified saints to take care of this problem. And the, and the congregation doesn't respond by saying, wow, like, don't we pay you for this kind of stuff? What do you, like, you work one day a week, guys. 
Isn't church ministry your job? I mean, wow, I really preferred my former synagogue leaders because when I told them about an issue, they just dropped everything to take care of it. Not only does the congregation answer the summons of the apostles and then gather all together, which is humble submission, not only do they hear the apostles' instructions, which is itself a command of delegation, which is submission, but the congregation was pleased with the apostles' solution. It says they're pleased. I mean, and then, and then of course, the apostles set the standard for all future members' meetings from that point on. Like, thanks, apostles. Have an excellent members' meeting, and everybody's pleased. What in the world is going on with members' meetings today? First members' meeting. Solution from the apostles pleased the whole gathering. So do you see the earliest stages of congregationalism here? Right? Like there's still a lot, a lot, like systems and structures aren't bad. They're necessary. But like there, there is no office of elder yet. There is no office of deacon yet. Those things haven't developed. We don't see elders in Jerusalem until later in Acts. But like you, you do see congregationalism. Since the, the, the apostles understand this, since the entire congregation enjoys the indwelling of the Spirit, the apostles can, can trust the Spirit-indwelt people of God to follow their Spirit-inspired instruction and to obey. They won't do it perfectly, but they'll do it faithfully. The congregation trusts the leadership of the apostles. The leadership entrusts the solution to this problem to the congregation. But they, the apostles oversee the process. Get qualified men, bring them to us. They bring seven men as instructed. The apostles lay their hands on them and then commission them. That's, that's congregation and leadership working together. Okay, we've got jobs. Oh, problem. Y'all have got to raise up qualified people to fix this issue. Bring these people. Okay, they're qualified. Let's commission them. Working together. Now, as an aside, this, this isn't the main point of the text, but I, it's, it's a common issue, which I don't think is a, that big an issue, but I, I just want to address it because I'm sure people will ask later. The text doesn't call these men deacons. Okay, there's no word deacon. There's, there's no office of deacon yet here. Not in, not in the church. These men, particularly Stephen and Philip, are entrusted with a whole lot more responsibilities than deacons are given. They're preaching and the power of the Spirit, evangelizing and the power of the Spirit on behalf of the church. But what I do think that we see here in Acts 6 is something of, of the office of deacon in, in germ form. I say that for Holly's benefit because she loves when I say germ form. Um, like deacons in, in germ form or proto-deacons, what would become the office of deacon? At this point in the narrative, Jerusalem church doesn't have elders, only apostles leading the church. <laughs> there are only Jews in the church, not Gentiles. The office of elder and deacon will come later, but, but we're beginning to see some glimpses of the bits and pieces of what those offices will require and how they'll function. So there's a reason why Pastor Drew leads our prayer time and our group meet congregational prayers throughout the week. There's a reason why I lead 
Why, each week I work together with the music team leader and the preacher to put together scripture and songs for our Sunday service liturgy. There's a reason why Drew and I preach and lead Sunday services regularly, as, long, as, as well as Michael. Why we spend much of our week, at least Drew and I, with saints in counseling, discipleship, fellowship. We've been entrusted with these important tasks. Y'all have set us apart to do these things full time. But there's also a reason why Brian doesn't lead the mercy meal train. Because people wouldn't get fed. You'd be hungry. Because I don't have the bandwidth. There's a reason why Drew doesn't organize the Holy City Church clothing swap. None of the clothes would fit y'all. It would all be his. All big and tall. And there would probably be a few clothes back there anyway. Those things, those tasks simply wouldn't get done. We, we have different roles in the body, and we must be devoted to the word and prayer as elders if we're to persevere in the ministry and if this church is to grow in number and holiness. So there's delegation, delegated responsibilities from Jesus and then delegated responsibilities from us to the congregation. All right, third point. Help one another so needs are met and the church grows. So the congregation is entrusted with raising up qualified men. We see in verse 5 that these seven men are... are the kind of men that the apostles required, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Because in a situation where a minority, a cultural minority, or a linguistic minority, is being overlooked in, in food distribution, that's a serious issue that needs people who are going to act wisely and not foolishly. Yeah, it's good that you have the, the Holy Spirit, but you can also be a dummy with the Spirit. So we need the Spirit and wise people who love the Lord and they have good reputations. They're above reproach. So they won't be in a a situation where it looks like there's some uneven, unfair treatment. We need people who are above reproach who people can't level a charge of, you're not being fair in a situation that looks like it's been unfair. So these are important qualifications for this particular issue. There needs to be trust shown in this kind of situation because balls have been dropped as the church has grown. Saints have been hurt and neglected, so men full of the Spirit need to love them well as they solve the issue. There are cultural and ethnic issues. There's wisdom that needs to be exercised as interactions between Hebrews and Hellenists go on. Interestingly, all seven of these men have Greek names. One of them is definitely, for, uh, definitely a former Gentile, Nicholas, which means that most, if not all, all of these men appointed by the congregation for overseeing food distribution are Hellenists. Remember, it's the Hellenists who are the cultural minorities who have complained about their widows being overlooked. So what does the congregation do under the leadership of the apostles? The body appoints mostly, if not exclusively, cultural minorities to lead the solution of cultural minority widows in the body being overlooked. That'll build trust. That shows care and love. These guys, like, yeah, they, they understand. They're just like me. Hellenists and Hebrews weren't huge fans of each other, and as Jews, they would have worshipped in separate places, but as Christians, they were made one family together in Christ. So like the majority Hebrew 
Christian congregation happily raises up seven likely all Hellenists to fix the issue. Happy to submit to their particular solution as the the apostles have commanded. So, interestingly, how these men accomplish the task of caring for these widows isn't important to the narrative. He doesn't tell us the solution. It's not important for our purposes, Luke tells us, because unity born out of the word in the midst of internal and external pressures is the focus here. Are you going to be united around the word as there's pressures from outside and inside? That's the focus, not on solutions. We could easily become too pragmatic. Are you going to be united? Are you going to love one another? Are you going to serve one another? Seven men clearly take care of the issue. The problem doesn't pop up again. There's no issue of Helena's complaining in the, in the future. The rest of the narrative of Acts. These men are godly. They're appointed by godly leadership. The godly congregation submits to the prescribed administrative solutions. And some of you today need to understand that the gift of, ministra- gift of administration that you possess could at some point literally be the means by which God keeps our church from dividing. Spiritual gifts are important. You don't have to be behind a pulpit to be really important to the church. If faithful administration is a gift of the Spirit and faithful administration was what spared the early church from division in Acts 6, don't diminish your administrative gift of scheduling volunteers, printing out Holy City Kids curriculum, scheduling women's events and studies, providing the Lord's Supper bread each week, Making sure coffee is roasted and brewed. That would probably do the most damage. (laughs) Printing out music sheets for the music team because simple acts of obedience to serve the body and the power of the Spirit can produce profound results for God's kingdom. At at very minimum, avoid problems that will divide the church. The gift of administration helped keep the early church united, ensured needs were met, and didn't cause church growth to stagnate. So if logistical issues related to shut-ins, widow care, mercy meals can be a point of contention and possible division, we must be very careful as we live together in the local church. Persecution from outside the church as well as sin and disunity within the church threatened to undo her. That, that's true. There are oppressive regimes all over the world that oppress the church. Actively. There has been persecution within the church. During the Reformation, some professing Christians were burnt at the stake. They were thrown into rivers with stones tied around their necks because they affirmed believers' baptism. Some of the Puritans in New England arrested Baptists for for being Baptist, holding to believers' baptism, credo baptism. That's how First Baptist Charleston was started. Because William Scraven, a pastor, was arrested in Maine, and then fled to Charleston and started a Baptist church. But it doesn't always have to be imprisonment or torture or death. Churches are split over carpet color, worship music style, budgets. These are largely administrative in nature. or preferential, or both. 
The early church was able to weather persecution, beatings, arrests, and murders. The early church was able to work through the complex issue of Gentile inclusion and a Gentile believer's relationship to the Old Testament law. The early church was able to weather the apostle Peter, temporarily abandoning the gospel to Gentiles, and and Paul had to rebuke him publicly, and he repented. The early church was able to weather sin, threats to division, logistical and administrative problems, and the early church remained united through it all. No schisms for hundreds of years. No saint running to another church in another city. Well, you know what? I'm just going to go to Antioch. (laughs) If just a hint of the many problems that face the early church happened to us today, I'm not so sure that we would be as united. And that's a sad indictment. Holy City Church was the first Southern Baptist church to be planted on James Island in decades, but not the first, uh, not the first Southern Baptist church to be started in decades. Many Southern Baptist churches here that have been started over the past 40, 50, 60 years, but they weren't church plants. They were divisions. Many churches in our culture have s- split over carpet color, stained glass windows, Arguments and committees, infighting between deacons and pastors, among other things. People, pulling back the curtain here, people have come and gone from Holy City Church for many reasons. I'll, I'll give you some reasons. We don't play enough classic worship music. By that, mean, by that they mean 1950s, 1960s hymns. We don't play enough traditional music. I don't know what they mean. Maybe Michael W. Smith. We take doctrines too seriously. Uh, we don't take some doctrine seriously enough. We're too small a local church. We're too big a local church. There isn't a large enough youth group. There are too many youth in the auditorium during the service. People dress too casually. People dress too formally. We've come because of the teaching. We can't stay because of the teaching. The congregation shows such love and hospitality. The congregation didn't really show us love and hospitality. And it goes on. Add COVID and lockdowns to the mix. Got a lot of church infighting which produced lots of division in many local churches in our nation, when the church should be marked by love, gentleness, boldness, perfect courtesy towards all. If the church is ultimately about Jesus and worshiping him as a body, you'll labor for unity. You'll overlook sin, you'll overlook weakness, you'll put harsh or ungodly criticism to death. You'll seek to humbly build up the body with your words and labor in the power of the Spirit to serve the body with your gifts. But if the church is about you and your preferences, then it'll be easy to divorce your church from, or divorce yourself from the church when problems inevitably pop up. Can you imagine if in your local church, like your widowed and poor mother was being forgotten and overlooked when food was handed out? Can you imagine if that was your mom today with Act 6? 
there'd be all kinds of reasons for anger, pride, grumbling, arguing, slander, division. You might tell her, you just need to leave. But what do you see in Acts 6, 1 to 7? Humility, not pride. Biblical solutions, not ungodly criticisms. Graciousness, not quarrelsomeness. Love, not anger. It would have been an easy temptation for the Hellenists to not believe the best in the Hebrews, casting this problem as an intentional oversight. That would have been easy. But by God's grace, they did not. What you see in Acts 6 is a people who have been shaped by the gospel, who have been made new and fashioned by the word of Christ and him crucified. The Hellenists took the problem to the apostles. These leaders gave a solution through delegation. Unity was preserved as the congregation worked out the solution with joy. Christian unity demands that we love one another in spite of our differences and in spite of problems that pop up because Christ loved us in spite of our sin and problems. Christian unity demands that we believe the best in one another because God has sealed each Christian with the Spirit who will complete the work that God has started in him or her. Unity is love expressed in the midst of differences and weakness and problems. Uniformity demands we must all look alike, we must all think alike, we must maintain the same kinds of convictions about everything. And a lot of church plants and churches fail today because they demand uniformity when the Bible demands unity. In our particular culture, you got a lot of professing Christians who will come for good teaching, but who won't stay when they start to see the problems. I mean, that's just a sad reality. You've also got a lot of professing Christians who will demand that the local church reflect their preferences and convictions, even on small things. And that often can lead to quarreling, harsh criticism, slander, gossip, you will not attain unity with that kind of unsubmissiveness. Nor will you happily submit yourself to a congregation, to church leaders, if you're only good at pointing out the problems but never stay anywhere long enough to provide solutions. The congregation heard about the problem, were given the delegated responsibility of finding the solution, and they were pleased to do it because God had changed them in Christ. Maybe you've been that kind of person in the past. I know I have. I got strong opinions. Maybe you're that kind of person now, and how should you respond? We always run to the cross. We always run to the cross where disunity and division and harsh criticism, unsubmissiveness, pride have all been nailed to the cross of Christ. And we humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. We confess our sins. We turn from sin. We turn to loving unity and repentance. We put off division. We put on unity. And what will happen as the word is preached and the church and her leaders rightly respond when problems arise? Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Not only was unity maintained, but it didn't disrupt the preaching more sinners were converted, and even priests looked at the body and said, I want what they've got. 
They saw the love of the Father and the love that was expressed between the members of the congregation, just as Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, how they should live. If the early church had to guard themselves carefully against division over logistical issues, we must guard against all forms of division in our body. The apostles demonstrate tremendous spiritual wisdom and leadership in Acts 6 to avert what could quickly become a crisis, and they led in such a way that the entire congregation was pleased with what they said. God loves to use faithful church leaders who are unafraid to act with grace, love, and boldness in the face of external persecution and internal tensions. God loves to use faithful congregations who love each other well in spite of differences and seek to solve problems that pop up because the person is more important than the problem. When disciples increase, problems increase. That's, that's promised. It's going to come. As we, as we see more people converted, we see more people drawn to the church, you better believe that more problems are going to walk in that door. They got names. I don't know them yet. But they're going to come in here and they're going to bring their problems. And we need to point them to the cross and love them in the midst of it. When problems increase, humility and love must increase. We labor together as a people united to Christ and one another. And may God cause, cause Holy City Church to grow in number and holiness as we strive in love to maintain the unity that we have by the Spirit as those problems come.